0: Alright guys, um, conflict resolution, lesson number eight. So we are winding down in this study of uh, peacemaking. Uh, last week we were talking about how to resolve conflicts through confession, repentance, what we call loving correction, and uh, forgiveness. And if we can get it going, we might be able to before we get through. We're trying to, I've tried to put all this on one one slide behind me that will have kind of hopefully just from, in a visual way will tie tie all of this together. But we're basically looking at this point, we're getting down to sort of the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of how this works. Uh, and we're not covering every single question, every topic, every verse. We're just trying to pull those main passages together um, that to give us somewhat of a framework of how, how to do this. Uh, I was thinking on the way in this morning that there are... If you will exceptions, I mean, this doesn't always play out in time like this really neat uh, thing. It's most fact most of the time it's pretty jagged. It's pretty unpredictable, and so you're trying to be faithful to these principles, uh, but you always have to take into consideration the details of of every circumstance, uh, and and certainly pray for wisdom in these things. But we're sort of looking at this in kind of in two different. Categories. One of these is learning how to love one another through confession and repentance. So this is the this is answering the question: Have you sinned? So if you are the one that is guilty of sin, uh, and that means a situation where you're the only one that's guilty, and so this need to go and to confess and repent and seek forgiveness. Or even in some cases, if it's going to eventually involve some kind of correction or reproving someone else, you still have to deal with the sin in your life. You still have to get the log out of your own eye. So, in either of those cases, uh, but we're asking that question uh, have you sinned? And then we've looked at these, main, mainly these passages Matthew chapter 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you leave your offering uh, there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Matthew chapter seven, verse five, Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And of course, Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And so, in this, we're, if we're the ones that have sinned, we go, we deal with our sin, we confess, repent, seek forgiveness, and of course, this command to be be reconciled. So that's sort of one side of the the equation, if you will. Then on the other side, more in the last week or so, we've been looking at this uh, other thing, which is learning to love one another uh, through correction and forgiveness. So this is answering the question, have you been sinned against? So if someone has sinned against you, then what do you do? And we've looked at Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So we've talked about times when that's appropriate to just overlook certain things. Um, but when that's not a, a wise option, again, you, you have to go. And at the very beginning in addition to dealing with your own uh, logs in your own life, you must forgive. So we've looked at this, Mark chapter 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. So that is to say that you settle the matter in your heart right then and there. Uh, We've talked about these two aspects of uh, of forgiveness. Uh, First, that forgiveness is an attitude that we cultivate in our hearts. And second, that forgiveness is also an action that transpires in a relationship, but that we do not extend as an action until a person confesses their wrongdoing. Now, I mentioned last week, uh, it's sort of like the difference between, and I use these terms, judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness forgiveness. Because I think these are helpful categories. Uh, if you think about your your salvation, in a judicial sense, you have, if you're a Christian, you have already been forgiven all of your trespasses once for all, so far as as you think about this in the, in, in the sense of, of, of receiving pardon from God as a judge. So we have these Sweeping verses, such as Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our tran- transgressions. That is to say, without reservation, we can agree with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation. So we have been spared because of this sort of overarching aspect of forgiveness. We have been spared condemnation. We have been spared hell. We have been spared uh, from God's wrath once for all. And sometimes we say that's in relation to our standing with God or before God. So the question then comes, if that's true, if we have this standing in the righteousness of Christ, if all of our sins have been forgiven in that way and there's no condemnation, then why seek the Lord's forgiveness when you already have it, right? Why, why, why does a believer do that? And what I would say, just sort of pulling these truths from, from God's word, is that, you do that, and I do that, not because we are seeking pardon from an angry judge, but we are going to the Lord in those moments to receive mercy from a grieving father. Because we don't relate to God in the same way anymore. We are, we are now children of God. In fact, Jesus taught believers to ask the Father to forgive their sins. Right? Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So this is an assu- there's an assumption here that this is, this is a daily thing, right? I mean, be- why? Because we continue to sin, right? And in, in numerous ways, we continue to grieve our Heavenly Father. And so just as we go and say, give us this day our daily bread, we also have to, on a regular basis, say, and forgive us, right? Even though we know we stand in this new place, in this... New position. This is parental forgiveness, and it's not about our standing. It's more about our walk with the Lord. You think about the penitential Psalms. The psalmist in those Psalms is demonstrating the heart of a justified believer when he seeks the Lord's forgiveness. So he's already a believer. He's already, oh, here we go, fully forgiven. All right, this may help. Or not? Can you advance that, Charlie? From there, there you go. Okay. Um, so this the, the psalmist in these in these psalms is already someone that's been justified, already someone that's been forgiven. <laughs> Nevertheless, what we find in those psalms is that he continues to seek forgiveness in an ongoing way. So you think about Psalm thirty-two. Okay, David writes this, Psalm 32, verse 1, he says, "'How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer.'" All right, what is the psalmist describe, well, describing there? He's not describing his life before he had a relationship with God, right? He's describing a season of his life in which he was in the family of God, but he was, he was holding on to his sin, right? He, he, he wasn't repent, repenting in an ongoing way, and and uncovering, if you will, his sin. In fact, you might say David was trying to cover his own sins, but the dirt wouldn't fit under the rug, right? It wouldn't all go under there. And so he's talking about that anguish in a believer's life when they're not confessing and repenting and believing. Confessing, repenting, and believing. And so it's actually affecting him. In some ways, it's it's affecting his his physical well-being. But, verse 5, he says this, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So the forgiveness here is really, I think he's tying this this act of God forgiving him to his act of confessing his transgressions to the Lord. So he's not going back to when he first believed, He's actually saying, I went through this time when I was not confessing and I was holding on to my sin as a child of God, and then I finally confessed that sin, and when I did that, when I confessed my transgressions to the Lord in that moment, God forgave the guilt of my sin. You could also go to Psalm 51, which actually tells us that this is is written or refers to that time when Nathan the prophet came to uh, King David and confronted him about his act of adultery and murder and you just you hear David talking about God asking God to be gracious to him and to cleanse him and to forgive him and to to make make him to to to, to hear joy and gladness and to restore that sense of rejoicing for the Lord to blot out his sins, to create in him a clean heart, to renew a steadfast spirit within David. So all of those things are things that we do as believers. We continue to confess. We continue to ask for cleansing, even though we could say from a theological, if we're talking about this positional aspect, we could say, well, we've already been cleansed, right? We've already been washed, right? I mean, Titus 3 talks about this, the washing of regeneration, right? But we just got to realize we're talking about two two different aspects of this. So this is what believers do. They keep repenting, they keep confessing, and God graciously keeps forgiving. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, or faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You remember what Jesus said to Peter when he went to wash the disciples' feet, John 13, Uh, Jesus says to Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. That is to say that we need only one bath. If you want to use this sort of, this picture, we need only one bath of regeneration and justification, but we need many cleansings. So we confess and we seek God's forgiveness, not in order to be spared from condemnation, but to be spared from God's chastening, and the loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ, so that we enjoy our salvation, that we, walk, that we may walk in fellowship with the Lord from day to day. And in a similar way, when someone offends us or hurts us or sins against us, at the very beginning in our hearts, we commit to the Lord to forgive. Not to stew over it, not to gossip about it, not to bring it up in a hurtful way or to use that against them. But that doing that, I would say, is doing that in your attitude and in your heart in that moment doesn't eliminate the need for the transaction of forgiveness that takes place in relationship when people acknowledge their sin and repent, right? So, in other words, it's something... It's like God initially saying, I forgive you all your sins. But then a year later, you're walking with the Lord and you sin... And I think there's an expectation that you come when you realize that that sin has affected your walk with Christ that you come and say, Lord, forgive me. There's two different things going on there. And I'm saying in the same way, I think that's just a good framework for us to think about this, that we initially have this attitude of forgiveness, which is mainly a vertical commitment to the Lord. And we do that even, even, even though we're not able to fully be reconciled sometimes. We can't, we're not always going to be fully reconciled with everyone who sins against us. And yet our attitude toward them should never be one of sinful anger, bitterness, or resentment. Because attitudinally we've dealt with this, right? We have forgiven them. Which then allows us to do these other things which the Lord calls us to do. For instance, Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I'm saying that if you don't deal with this in your heart, in that attitude-type way, you're probably not going to be faithful to do what that passage just said. It's actually doing that in your heart that frees you to go and to do these things, to, to give, to feed your enemy, to give your enemy a drink, or as he says, to overcome evil with good. So we're commanded to love, we're to desire their best, which means we'll do everything that we can to bring them to repentance And always be ready to reconcile because this reconciliation piece requires them to acknowledge their sin, right? You're not reconciled to them if this is only a one-way street, right? And so you forgive attitudinally, but then in order to forgive in transaction, in relationship, requires for them to also come and say, I repent, will you forgive me? So even the Lord does this in Psalm eighty six verse five. This says this about God: it says, "For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you." So the assumption is that, there, that God doesn't just just throw for a big blanket of forgiveness over everybody, right? Is everybody's forgiven? No, it says here He stands ready to do this. But in that verse, the thing that triggers that is the fact that people call upon him. And until they do, he doesn't forgive. So again, that's more of that transactional element of forgiveness. So the key here is to do this in our hearts and then to demonstrate aggressive love that will keep us from bitterness. Another passage, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, "...but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you, for even sinners love those who love them?" If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men." So even though men, st- millions of them, by the way, today, stand against God, they, 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 they receive gifts from God. They, they breathe air, and they have families, and they have jobs and food and all that stuff. They, they take advantage of the gifts of God, and yet they're ungrateful and evil men. What Jesus says here is that God himself is kind to those people even though if, if anybody knows the true condition of those people's hearts, it's him. So it's, it, it, God doesn't have to go out and research and, and investigate situations, right? I mean, he, he knows what's in the hearts of men, so he knows they're ungrateful. And yet he continues to dispense his good gifts, and he knows they're evil. And yet Jesus says, but he's kind. And then he tells us this, this, is, this is the, that's the buildup. Here's the, here's the conclusion, verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You show mercy. You show mercy. So I'm just saying, if we're looking at this sort of in, in sequence, you deal with your own log first, <clears throat> and then as you go, right, you're going to, to do this. Before you ever get to that conversation, what should you have already done in your heart? Forgiven, Right? And you're already practicing kindness and mercy. So you're not going to wait until you see how this goes to determine if you're going to be kind. Because Jesus is just ripping that right off and saying, no, you can't do that. You've got to imitate your father who is merciful to, to, to ungrateful and evil men. So you, in your heart, you forgive, and then you immediately get busy doing the things that Jesus talks about in this passage. You bless, you pray for, you give, you lend, you do the things that if you were in their position that you would, you treat them in the way that if you switched places, you would want them to treat you. You're doing all that on the front end before you go to reprove. Does that make sense? Okay. So all this, and again, this can happen really fast. <laughs> okay, so I mean, this, this things can happen in in a in a situation. I mean, really like rapid fire, or it could be days, or it could be weeks. Or some of you have forgiven others in your heart, and you've been this, doing this thing of doing good for years, and yet you're and you still haven't. You're still not reconciled, right? But you keep doing this and you keep doing this. And the reason you do that is because Romans chapter 2 tells us that it was the kindness of God that led you to repentance. And so sometimes God uses that kindness and mercy over long periods of time to break a person, right, and to bring them to a place of humility and repentance. And so those, again, are things we are trying to emulate, trying to imitate Now, we also looked at Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. We looked at Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Be on your guard, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Again, if he sins against you seven times a day and he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So we've looked at those passages. And that Luke 17 passage really emphasizes that the more the transactional side, right? In other words, what actually happens in a relationship when you go to do the reproving and the rebuking, and if a person in that that situation or in that moment or in that conversation says, I repent, Jesus says, then forgive. We talked about the importance of doing that, of forgiving in that moment and not waiting until you see the fruits of that over time. Because you might be thinking, again, well, this person can say they're repentant, but, but but how will we know? Maybe we need to wait a few months to find that out. And Jesus says, you can't afford to do that. Because if you wait, you're going to become hyper-analytical. You, you're you're going to zero in on that thing, and you're going to be extremely sensitive. And Jesus just says, you, you, you can't do that. Now, if that person, if you forgive them in relationship in that moment... And then three months later, it's apparent to you and everyone else there's no repentance, okay? That's another issue, right? That is something that you have to come back around and address. But the wisdom here is that Jesus says, don't let that, the suspicion that it's real or it's not real or whatever, don't let that be the thing that keeps you from forgiving. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. Now, to add to all of that, there's... An, few other examples of this, this forgiveness uh, that's extended in response to repentance um, and other help, some other helpful passages for us. Second Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, this is dealing with a man, some different views on this. Some believe it's uh, the, the, the man that was uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians that was uh, committing uh, a, a adultery, impurity. Uh, incest. Uh, Others believe that this is someone that Paul's talking about, a man here, who had confronted Paul with false accusations. Uh, So really more in relation to the, 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 the people that came in behind Paul after he had left the church at Corinth, other individuals that came in and tried to sort of gain the loyalty of the people and to really undermine and discredit Paul's ministry. And so this is Paul really dealing with a particular individual that was in the church that, that had done that, had brought fa- false accusations against uh, Paul and, that, and someone that the church had, had followed. They had followed through, evidently, in, a, in this biblical process of disciplining that individual. But in, at this point in time, this person is, from the text, he's repentant. So whatever the the particular sin was is those mainly those two two main views. I think the reason why people tend to lean towards the the, the view that this is someone that was undermining paul 's ministry is because Paul spends so much time in Second Corinthians talking about that issue as being the thing that really uh hurt him because he had had this this wonderful relationship with the church and that was being that was really being harmed by this and so paul re- deals with that throughout the letter of Second Corinthians. But the church had evidently done it, it early on, or maybe they weren't doing the right thing. In the case, of it, if it was the immoral man of First Corinthians, then the church wasn't really doing their job. But at some point, the church kicks it into high gear. They do what they're supposed to do to be faithful to the Lord through this process. But now the person that was being confronted is now being... He's, he's, he's demonstrated repentance in his life. And so Paul has this to say in 2 Corinthians 2, verse verse 5, But if any any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So what he's saying here is that uh, churches, if you want to just p- sort of pull back and just sort of generalize this a little bit, churches tend to make two mistakes. Either churches completely ignore the process of church discipline, <laughs> right? So they're in that in that boat of they just tolerate too much sin, right? There's just way too much sin going on in the body of Christ, and everybody's just pretending like it's not there and and ignoring that and not dealing with it. But then there are churches that actually do a decent job of trying to address these things as they come, and they're complicated and complex issues, but they, they strive to be faithful in that. But then in those cases, and there's, it's not, there's not always a, a bunch of these. I mean, I can't give you a ton of examples of this, but when the church has to get involved in those situations and there is repentance on the part of an individual, sometimes the church can be um, slow to forgive, slow to restore, slow to put their arm back around this person and say, we love you, right, and comfort that person. And so Paul's saying, I've, in my heart, because he's not there, right, so he's saying, I've done this sort of in my heart, but church, you've got to do some things. And if this brother is repentant, then you need to be careful that by your actions, you don't encourage this brother to be basically buried in sorrow, And so, verse 8, he says, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. It's interesting that Paul tells us that we are not ignorant. He, and even even to this church, can you think about? It? We got the whole Bible, right? We got all these Old Testament, New Testament books. He's writing to this this church, and they didn't even have all. The, I mean, the New Testament wasn't formally put together. They didn't have all this in their hands, and yet he's already telling this church that you are not ignorant as, as to how the enemy works. And so his assumption is that already from what they have, <laughs> from, the, from the scriptures, that they would have already learned how Satan operates. And what Satan does, if you boil it down, is Satan distorts God's word so that we don't obey God's will. So he begins with the truth, somehow conceals it, somehow perverts it, twists it, does something with that to cause us to not believe it or to understand it. But then ultimately, it's so that we make unbiblical decisions. It's, it's, he knows that if he can get us here, right, if he, can, if he can change the way that we think about these things, that we don't think biblically about these issues, then we won't act biblically in the choices that we make. And so he says here, Satan can take advantage of this situation if you're not careful, if you're not quick to forgive, if you're not quick to reaffirm your love, if you're not quick to comfort, then you open the door for the enemy to to wreak havoc in, in the body of Christ, in the church. So we go reproving, we go correcting But based upon this passage, the ultimate goal is to see repentance and for believers not to stop short of putting our arms back around whoever it is. And I'm saying this even applies to personal relationships, right? I mean, once someone has, again, go back to the passage in Luke, they say they repent, then forgive. And I'm saying it's not forgive and, you know, now I forgive you, but I don't want to have anything to do with you. It's, I forgive you, and and I want to reaffirm my love for you. Now, again, the trust piece here has to be worked out. Forgiving someone and trusting someone is not the same thing. So we are are obligated to forgive people, but we're not obligated to trust people. Trust is something that you build back over time. Forgiveness is something that we extend in a moment in time. But we must forgive. Now, we also have Galatians chapter 6. If you want to turn there, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So he says we do this ministry of reproving, this correcting ministry that we're we are obligated to perform as believers is, is for the purpose of restoration. He uses a word here that talks actually can be translated as co- "to complete something, or to prepare something, or to even repair or to mend something. This was used in Matthew chapter four, verse 21, regarding James and John mending their fishing nets. And so it's this idea of, of doing something, in that case, with nets that were not fully functional, but doing something so that they could be repaired, so that they could be useful again. So restoring something to to a place or a condition of of usefulness. So when someone is caught or, or overtaken in any kind of sin, you intervene with humility and gentleness being filled with the Spirit for the purpose of restoring them to that place of usefulness once again, not to tear them apart, but to set things right or to set them back in their proper place. So love drives the confrontation and edification. Providing the need in the moment is the key because there are sensitivities in these situations and carefulness is, is, is always required, but the command is clear. We must help people with sin. We have to help others when they're in these situations. And the principles here are essential. The sin is known. We've said this. this is, these are some of the th- those things that run through these scriptures. The sin is known. We're not talking about a preference issue. We're not talking about matters of conscience. The sin is known. You must be the spiritual one to do this. And when it says you who are spiritual, because we use that term Oh, he's, she's so spiritual, almost like <laughs> I always say it, almost in a sarcastic way. But it's not talking about someone that is mature or who has been a believer for 40 years. Or That's not what Paul's getting at. He just talked about walking in the Spirit. So all he's saying is that you can be a five-day-old Christian, but if you see your brother or sister caught in a trespass, you don't have to have been a Christian for three decades to be, to be a part of that ministry. You can be a brand-new Christian and walk in the Spirit, right? You can be a brand-new Christian and be spirit a Spirit-filled Christian. And so you're to be Spirit-filled as you go and do this, and you go with the goal of restoration by God's grace. And you do it in a spirit of gentleness with nothing personal added into that. It's so easy to go into these situations and you're you're in you you're, you're, you have this your heart is right and, and your and your goal is in mind and you're and you're trying to prepare yourself for this, and then you actually get into the conversation and you have to put a little personal twist on it or or mention something that was that's really off subject or you know you throw your little jab in there or whatnot, but you you just you can't do that in fact, you have to know your your own heart in full awareness meaning that you you have to take heed to yourself, he says, so that you are not tempted and stumble, either tempted to be angry with a a poor response or tempted to the same kinds of sin. So you have to go into this realizing that even in the the process of trying to correct someone else, you yourself can be guilty of sin. So very, very careful about these things. These things require great skill, such as learning to ask ask good questions and, and listening, and not questions that are simply investigative, but, but also indicting questions that require an answer before the Lord. So you are going in, in some cases, you're still sort of gathering information, um, although you don't want to... You don't want to, I said, you've got to be careful about rushing in with conclusions already formed. And like you're already basically, the bullet is in the chamber and you're ready to rebuke, but you really have a lot of questions and data gathering to do. I'm not sure you want to be that prepared to rebuke if you have that much information to still gather. So you really need to get as much information as you can before you actually go to. I mean, like sort of prepared to rebuke someone. Because when you do that, again, what you're doing is you're trying to bring them into the presence of God and say, this is so obvious that I'm going to ask you a question that is not going to simply be for the purpose of gathering information. It's actually for the purpose of of highlighting this thing in your life so that there is no escape. Think about this this question that Peter was asked in Galatians 2:14 by Paul. Paul said, "If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews?" It's a question, right? But Paul's not gathering data. That's that's not a I don't know really sh- what Peter's doing and I need to get more information. That's actually Paul having gathered a ton of information, knowing the facts but yet, putting it into a question form in such a way that it literally highlights the hypocrisy in peter 's life <laughs> it 's like there's no escape there's no escape and i 'm saying it takes it takes skill to do that, folks. you just don't like that didn 't just happen the first time you go to reprove someone. Those are things that you you, you develop this this Skill in the Christian life to do this in more effective ways. And you're always learning. You're always growing in these areas. You don't have it all figured out. You have these principles. You have the Spirit of God. You have the truth. But you're still just like, it'd be like saying, taking a, 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 you know, a couple with their first child and just sitting them down over a weekend and telling, teaching them every principle about parenting. And then them just going, okay, we got this. You know, It's like, okay, now go do it. And I guarantee you, they're going to fall on their face time and time and time and time and time again, right? The principles haven't changed, but it's just going to take them time, right? They have to develop skill in those things. It's not enough to just know the facts, the principles. But they have to exercise these things, and it's no different here. I mean, we have the principles, right? They're all here. We have the scriptures, but the situations change, details of the situations change, and, and our sanctification is changing. Right where we are in our own maturity is, is changing. Another text, 1 Thessalonians, 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Paul says, We urge you, brethren, admonish... So this is our word for reproving and rebuking, warning. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone... See that no one repays another with evil, uh, with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So there's different needs which require different approaches. So we don't, when someone is weak or when someone is faint-hearted, we don't go into those situations. The goal is not to admonish and reprove, right? And at the same time, if you flip that around, when you have someone that is... Of course, the New American Standard here says unruly. Any, what? Anybody have a different translation for that? Admonish the unruly, that first group, that first category. The idol, the idol? okay, what else? Is that the ESV? Mm-hmm. Okay, anybody else? Different translation for that word, unruly? It's, it's a word for someone that is in a, 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 a... Think of a group of soldiers all marching together in... Step same rhythm same stride and then you have the Gomer pile you have you have the the one guy that's kind of you know that's like and you can look and all that you know you've seen them the, all the legs are going and everybody's in sync and then you have the one guy that's out of sync with everybody else that's really the imagery here so what it's just saying is that you have a group of believers and you have this body of teaching we call it sound doctrine right but then you have this person. That is just not. It's you know what I'm saying. He's just not synchronized with the teaching of Scripture, and with these other believers. And in that case, he says you have to admonish those individuals. The reason, it, ESV, said, you said idol. The re, that when idol meaning not I D O L, but idol is in sitting still, right? Not doing anything. The reason that's not the word for idol, okay. The reason they translate it as that is because in the context, when Paul gets over to 2 Thessalonians, he's referring to this group of people that are not working. And he uses the same word, this term for unruly, to describe those people that are not diligent about working because they're thinking Jesus is coming back today, right? Why, Why do I need to go work? Right? I mean, why go to our jobs this week? All you guys, listen, you just take off. You don't need to go to your jobs this week because Jesus is coming back. And so these people were doing that, but but Jesus wasn't coming back. And so what happened is then their needs started to grow and the needs weren't being met. And so then where does that burden fall? It started to fall in the church. So it's like, hey, listen, I'm really behind on my bills and I hadn't been working in a few months. And, I, you know, but I thought Jesus was coming back any any moment. And so can you help me pay my gas bill? And so the church is stepping in and they're doing these things, but it's getting to this point where it's like, no, these people need to be rebuked. You need to go to work. Yes, Jesus is coming back. Now get to work, you know? And so it's actually the context of this, per, this these individuals not working and Paul describing them as being undisciplined. That's why he, they translate this as the word idle because they're doing that, they're 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 translating it more from the context than from what the word means itself. So Paul's just saying, listen, there are people that need to be admonished. There are people that need to be warned. And you don't need to help or encourage or comfort those people. So in other words, what he's saying is, in the same way you wouldn't go to someone who is weak and faint-hearted and (laughs) reprove them, right? You wouldn't do that. They don't need that, right? They need comfort, Then there's this group of people over here sometimes that are undisciplined and unruly. But guess what? They don't need your comfort. What they need is your warning. So he's just saying there are different people, different circumstances, and it requires a different kind of ministry. Now, if you warn that person and they repent, then what did the text we just looked at tell us to do? That when they repent, you do what? Comfort them. Right? But you don't just extend that comfort and everything's fine and wonderful, and we love you when you have someone that is living an undisciplined life. In fact, let's just make this our last one for today. Second Thessalonians, just a few pages to the right. chapter three, verse six. This is that this is where the context, you know we get more information about this. Second Thessalonians three verse six, "Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. There's our term, unruly, undisciplined, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Paul's not talking about like tradition in the way that Jesus talked about the traditions of men. He's talking about the tradition of the truth that Paul passed on to the church. But he says here that if these people are living an undisciplined and unruly life, that you and he uses this phrase, keep away from them, or it's a word that means to take precaution, to guard against, or even in some cases, to avoid. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, there's the term again, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate. It's a word for mingling. It's a word for for mixing ingredients together. In other words, do not have dealings with him so that he will be put to shame hopefully leading to repentance. Yet, verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So once again, the purpose. What's the purpose of all this? The purpose of all this is restoration. The purpose of all this is is reconciliation. And so we go, and at times there's reproving, and there's correcting, and there's times when that is not being heard, that's not being... Uh, followed, if it's not being received, if there's no change, then there's these commands along the way to to identify those individuals and to not mix with those individuals or mingle with them or to be careful regarding that in order to create a sense of shame, not for the purpose of humiliation, but so that that might, again, drive them to humility and repentance and brokenness. And when that repentance and brokenness comes, then you comfort and you reaffirm your love for them, but you't can't, you can't avoid this i mean you can't you just say you're just, there's just way too many passages that deal with these different principles and dynamics you can 't just say oh that 's for somebody else to do <laughs> you can't do that you 've got to get engaged in these things you 've got to deal with your own sin first you 've got to confess sin and seek forgiveness and and then you've got to, in some cases, go and correct others, but all for the purpose. Your goal is that they would receive those things, that they would repent, and that they would seek your forgiveness and the forgiveness of others, and that the church would, would be unified in that. Unfortunately, that's not always the end, right? It's not always, that's not always what happens. That's not always the, 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 the end result. And there's only so many things you can do in these relationships, but you never stop praying, you never stop blessing, you never stop being kind, you never stop showing mercy, you never stop doing good. <laughs> and even in that ministry back in 1 Thessalonians, admonish, you know, that little phrase, after he said, there's different people and there's different things you must do, but then it says, but be patient with all men. It's just saying the patience thing has to, is the big umbrella. It doesn't matter what the individual's, are doing, you have to always be on guard that you don't lose it, right? That you don't get sinfully angry and bitter and resentful. And the way I think the best way for you to combat that acid of resentment is to forgive attitudinally and to begin to do those very things that Jesus calls us to do in Luke 6 and that Paul calls us to do in Romans 12. And yet we still have to follow through this process. We still have to admonish and admonish correct, and sometimes we have to not associate with, but we're still, we still have to be kind and loving and merciful. Why? Because your heavenly Father is merciful to ungrateful and evil men. No excuses. You just have to continue to be kind over and over and over again. Well, We'll come back. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 12. Um, uh, we'll, we'll also uh, I'll have some just maybe some, some maybe some final exhortations for us next next time, um, and then talk a little bit about again some of those conscience issues. Hopefully, try to get all that done next time so that we do have some some uh, some freedom the last Sunday of August to kick around some of these. Uh, it's sort of a Q and A, and some of you already given me great questions, and I'm and I've, I may just throw some of those things back out. Um, and, um, and use those as examples and try to deal with some of these things as far as the, you know, if there are exceptions to this or, uh, you know, some of the nuances, which there are always those uh, to consider. So if you've got thoughts on that, let me know, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to do that that last week. Okay, folks, thanks so much for your time. Again, we